Welcome back to the second episode of Gathering from Startwell. Today, we are in studio with none other than um, Startwell customer and founder, co-founder of... Co-founder and CEO. Ooh, and CEO <laughs> of Dev Talent, which is a Toronto-based company we're going to uh, dive into. We'll hear a lot more from Sean Wynn. Wynn. Hin? Wynn. Win. It's like win with an H. Win. I love that. <laughs> winning. You're always winning <laughs> that, with exactly. Sean from DevTalent. Exactly. Um, Sean, firstly, thank you for taking time uh, to join me on studio. I know you're in a team session all day upstairs. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, let's jump into it. So a little bit of the background on this podcast, on the conference that we're hosting in April, um, is really just to say that people who support teams in organizations whether they fall, uh, you know, into some sort of corporate HR structure or their EAs or anyone else who shares that responsibility with their team of kind of being a support for that team. Um, we're trying to provide unique perspectives, tools, and uh, tips and tricks for those people. Uh, and I thought it was really, I think it should be pretty interesting to explore kind of your take on um really teams and how teams function um, in whatever lens we want to spin this. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I think to start things off, at least for our audience uh, who come from that world, yeah. let's break down what DevTalent is and where, um, where, where it got founded from. What was the impetus for, for what you do? And um, give me some color on, on, on what you guys actually are set out to achieve. Yeah, for sure, Kasim. So first off, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Um, so, very simply, DevTalent's a recruitment agency. Um, the reason we started our business was um, my partner, Chris, he was actually a customer of mine. Mm. And so I was working at a company where we did uh, iOS and Android development. Okay. And he was an engineering manager. He was working at one of the big banks at the time. And so we were supplying him with iOS and Android developers. And our company we're using recruiters to help us find that talent that we'd be sending to the bank. Mm, okay. And what we both found, and in Chris, in his career as well, he went on from there to go on to become a, a director of engineering for uh, a couple startups. We both found that a lot of the recruitment agencies we were working with, they were great at selling, like the opportunity and selling companies, but they lacked kind of a technical background to mm -hmm. really truly understand the best like, fit the best fit right so you know sometimes they send us profiles and it'd be like a wild miss and you know they just don't have that technical kind of background right so we're, we're like we want to be a technical recruitment agency with a technical background mm -hmm. and that was kind of our thing and so it was middle 2020 like right when the pandemic was going on uh both chris and i had been laid off from our respective jobs. Yeah. Cast aside. We'd been downsized. <laughs> yeah, we just... And at the time, I think we were both at the same kind of uh, point in our lives and our careers, and we're like, you know what, let's let's give it a go. And uh, I said I wanted a technical partner to make it happen. I mean, I'm more of a sales guy. Okay. He was the technical guy, and it just it made sense. So we started the business in around June-ish, 2020, and uh, we got some customers. And at first, we started pretty much focused primarily on software engineering roles. So like mm. software developers, mobile developers, QA, DevOps people. Um, then we got into more product management and like product design. Cause it was like 
very natural progression. Sure. Um, and the same clients were basically asking for those roles. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And now, and now we're doing some more tech sales roles. So tech sales, account management, uh, sol- solutions engineers. So we're we're kind of widening our scope. But uh, yeah, that that's a nutshell dev talent. So your core customer is it typically uh, like are they are they software companies companies that rely on software sell software SaaS based companies for the most part? Yeah, I would say the majority of our client base, well, in, at least in our first two years, was that. In the past six to eight months, we've seen ourselves go more up market into some more enterprise type mm-hmm. clients, in particular in telco. Mm-hmm. But I would say the majority of our business has been, you know, those series A through E high growth SaaS startups. It's interesting. So let's talk about this idea. Like growth and scale, or I should say scale ups, right? Like mm-hmm. rapidly scaling technology companies. They have so much that they, so much on their plate. Like mm-hmm. it's so funny because we recently hosted um, a scale up conference for Georgian. Mm-hmm. Do you know Georgian? They're like they're like one of the the largest Canadian in terms of the, the check size that they write largest Canadian venture capital firms, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they've been doing some interesting stuff to kind of de-risk their investments, but also kind of offer value to the scale ups to de-risk growth, right? Yeah. And to help them scale specifically, mm-hmm. um, so they they hosted the scale up conference at Startwell in in our hybrid event studio around the corner. Okay, great. And it's interesting because some of the stuff that came to light during the sessions is that you know. It almost seems easy to get the capital when you need a hundred million dollars, you need fifty million dollars, and you've got this like, you know, IP based product that mm-hmm. is going to win global markets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the now what question uh, is really difficult, and the now what question office uh, or obviously involves people. Like it's like you got to build a company, and a company relies on people to do so many millions of things, mm-hmm. um, and. One of the notes, at least for this conversation, which I find interesting, is that came out of that conference is I didn't get a clear understanding from any of the attendees that I talked to that they firstly appreciated the need to build a culture or develop a culture at their organization. And then two, even if they did, have any plan for how to sustain culture uh, and continue, you know, the early hiring culture that they might have had mm-hmm. when they were scrappy uh, as they got more capital down the road and as they grew from 10 to 50 to 100 to 200 staff uh, would bound those staff to the same common purpose. Yeah. Um, so it was really interesting. So these rapidly scaling customers that you know might be your customers, um, what are they looking for aside from just filling roles? Like, have you guys been asked about this sort of function? Or are you looking to match people with organizations if you have a mandate for multiple roles to fill mm-hmm. to find anything like common ground between those people? Well, it's interesting, right? Because there's always, most companies have what's called a culture fit interview, right? And, you know, sometimes when people say that to me, I, like I, I typically don't try to ask right? because... I don't really know what that means, mm-hmm. right? And I think a lot of these are clients that are scaling up rapidly, right? You can be very selective. You know, when you're under 20 employees, you can be extremely selective in the types of, you know, talent that you want to bring in, mm-hmm. right? Do I get along with you? Do we communicate well? Like, do I think, you know, you'll be a good fit for us when we do our company offsite? Like, are you going right. to gel with other people on the team? Right. Right. 
are you in the same kind of like demographic? Like, you know, people don't want to say that outwardly, but you know, that's kind of what they're saying. Right? Yeah, they want to enjoy spending time working alongside their coworkers. A- for sure. a- exactly, right? But And trust them, that's another thing. But anyway, I won't take us on a tangent. Well, that, yeah, that, well, that's, yeah, that's another thing. But then as you go from 20 employees to 50 to 200 to 250 to 500 to 1,000, I think the mindset starts to, sh- to change a little bit, right? And then the whole culture fit question becomes more challenging, mm-hmm. right? Because let's, let's just go focus on software engineering because that's what we primarily do. Do you want a very good software engineer who knows how to code and is brilliant behind the keyboard but maybe doesn't really match the culture fit piece, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think as you scale, you know, companies, they realize that, that, that those perfect unicorns, those people that were like the perfect fit when you were 20 right, right. people, it's not the same as when you're 200 or when you're 500. For sure. And you have to accessorize people. When you find strengths in people, you have to accessorize them with other people on the team that may not fit your functional expectations of what the team on paper should be. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're hunting for those uh, the people that can like really solve complex problems or have you know unique insight into whatever process. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you see that in like deep science companies. That's been a historic thing, right? If you're hiring PhDs, they're domain experts. And you know one of our previous companies, BE Works, which is like a kind of a think tank consultancy. Uh, it's partnered with Sidley and these other agencies owned by by a Japanese consortium. Um, they were residents here a number of years ago, and I remember conversations where uh, they were saying that their whole knowledge base was developed out of you know the talent that they brought on. Mm-hmm. The company existed because of the brains inside of the heads of their staff. And so whenever they added someone, they were specifically adding unique talents. Yeah. And that was a really complex cultural fit question because they had all these very differing types of people. The people came to the work. They didn't come to the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, this is an IRL life in 2017, you know? This was pre-pandemic. So it was really interesting because we housed for, you know, a year or whatever it was, we housed like 30 of their, their team members. And they found, and this is something that was actually on our last podcast uh, with uh, with a chap named Dion from Sunwing. He was talking about how people naturally find culture. Mm-hmm. Or define culture together. It's not I spent a. Spent a lot of time with Sunwing, actually. I, uh, right. There used to be one of my customers too. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I used to spend uh, quite a bit of time out in their office down by the wow. airport. Yeah. Sunwing's a cool company. Yeah. Small world, man. Um, it's interesting though because like culture does kind of exist amongst humanity, right? Whenever mm-hmm. there's groups of people, they define their own culture. They might not consciously define it, but they find their groove. People find their groove. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's interesting to talk about how people are hiring to fit roles that, and, and what approach they take to filling that role. Well, you know, it's, uh, on that topic, it's, it's yeah. interesting because we have a lot of startup clients. Mm-hmm. And... A lot of startup clients say, I want people with startup experience because... They, what does that mean, like, to the I clients who ask? 
I know it's kind of like there's this bro culture, you know, frat boy shit, right? Yeah. And I could say that because I come from Start. Well, my company is called Start, Start Well. well yeah. You know, like, but you know, we. Yeah, I mean, I've been an investor. I've started startups, and I know the whole tech ecosystem intimately. So I, I understand that perspective of like, yeah, we want to like play ping pong together, mm-hmm. right? Um, but also, is it or is it more a functional expectation of agility and like not being rigid? Well, I think it's it's more the latter, to to be honest. But I think it's let's say this software engineers that let's say work at certain enterprises. Let's let's call it just banks in sure. general. Yep. Right. The impression of some of those developers, whether this is fair or not, I, I personally don't think this is fair, but the impression sometimes from certain startups is that if you work at a bank, the pace is too slow mm. and you will not be able to adapt to the pace that we work at. Mm-hmm. Which I, I can understand a little bit, though I don't, I wouldn't say I necessarily agree with right. completely. Yeah. But I think that's part of the, like, as companies mature, I think, you know, when you are when you only have eight engineers on your team, then cool. You just go to the all the hottest startups and you grab those people. Mm-hmm. But when you need to hire 100 engineers, you know, to say I'm not going to hire anyone who works at, you know, any of the, you know, big banks, I think that's... Uh, you know, it's racism, bit. man. <laughs> no, but like I it, say it's, it's racism. It's, cla- but it's, it's classism it's... in a sense, because there's an assumption of there's this biased assumption of, yeah, I, I mean uh, maybe cultural fit, but also of of like you're saying like, ten Xers don't work at the bank, right? It's like this is a joke that people have often, or I always maybe talk about people. You know, when we're talking about like a political macroeconomic question of the world, you know, uh-huh. and shooting this shit once in a while, um, it always comes up. People. I've heard this multiple times from different people, and it's it's a topic I really like, which is um, it seems like the secret services of the world, you know, and the, the, the agents that we love to watch on television and in movies, all the spies, all the James Bond guys, uh-huh. kind of died out since the 80s. <laughs> and it might have been an HR problem. <laughs> Maybe. You know, uh, everyone went private contractor, right? This is the kind of inside joke in Washington is that, like, everyone made more money in the private sector, and the, and it wasn't sexy to to be you know in that line of business anymore and then the political you know arena in the world is like less back-end uh efficient Mm. because of this but so it's kind of interesting is like there's also that question of leave aside the employers who want to hire a certain type of person maybe that certain type of person is also looking for a certain type of employment very true so Let's talk about this then. If you're specialized in sourcing, um, I know you're you're branching out, like you said, in the project managers and other people that fill roles within these uh, rapidly scaling organizations, mm-hmm. and probably like tech enabled enterprise, right? Yeah. Um, what are you seeing from talent? In in, in what regards? In terms of like what people are looking for, are people primarily who you place with jobs looking for uh, salary bonus? You know, like monetization, recompense, mm-hmm. uh, and then workplace flexibility, or like what are the what are the hit list of things people are looking for typically that you deal with? Yeah, for for software engineers in particular, I mean, for everybody, I think compensation is usually going to be near the top, right? Not always at the very top, mm-hmm. but it, it's usually within you know your top three 
things that you care about. And how is that normally packaged in terms of what people are looking for from your angle? Is that I just say, salary? I would say more salary. Okay. I would say especially, in, so we have a lot of clients in the United States hiring developers in Canada. Right. And especially our Silicon Valley clients, they they talk and they value the the equity component of their offers. Mm-hmm. Like much ESOPs m- and stock options. Yeah. yeah. Much more than our candidates. Like Interesting. candidates who are negotiating their offers. Yeah. Canadian candidates, they're negotiating offers with U.S. companies. I would say the majority of them are negotiating for higher salary mm-hmm. or higher like sign-on bonus, like cash sign-on bonus, yeah. as opposed to more stock. They want the money now, and they want to rely on that money. Because they don't know if they're going to be there yeah. for four years. I mean, that makes sense. That's the honest know? truth. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of these stock options vest over four years. You go on LinkedIn right now and you look at how the average tenure for software developer. Spoiler alert. It's not four years. Six months. No, it's crazy though. Like it, it, no matter what role even that we are, um, you know, that we would have open at Startwell, right? Not yeah. necessarily, unfortunately, I'm not in the position to pay the salaries to compete with, you know, the best funded scale-ups out there. Uh, however, you know, uh, it's a different kind of workplace, right? Um, regardless, the point I'm making is Living in Toronto specifically and looking at the resumes I get. Oh, I, n- I never finished my, oh, yeah. my thought. Continue. So it's comp, career growth. Yeah, that's and then, interesting. And then the technical problems. So people are more interested in career growth and being in a place that's going to be like massaging their brain and enabling them to learn and to grow than possibly a payday down in the future. I, I would even say like the technical challenges that they're going to be solving is a big one mm-hmm. right i think if a, a lot of times engineers come to us because they feel like stagnant mm-hmm. they don't feel like they're growing they don't feel like their skills are evolving or they don't like maybe they've been working on a product for two years mm-hmm. and they're in maintenance mode and and they ha- they've solved the big problem yeah and they delivered right so i think that's really what really drives a lot of engineers, they get that's what gets them out of bed. But and then, of course, you got to pay them too, right? I ran a team once, and I won't talk about what company this was at. Okay. But I ran this team that had maybe about, it was like 10 growing to 30 devs. And they were like communicating over email. And I was like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Don't you have a, a code base that you're, you're checking in and out of or using SVN? Like, what's happening here? And how are you communicating? And then we implemented a GitLab. Mm-hmm. And it was like they were like so leveled up in their competency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was thinking of these guys originally. Oh, man, this is a deep player team. We've got to fire all these guys and replace them. Because they were so not motivated by even how they were mm-hmm. communicating that their collective output was very low. And then, you know, tweaking some things gave them the tools they needed to like move faster. Yeah. And also to use for peer-to-peer mentorship. Like they learned from each other better with better tools. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really interesting to see that. Um, so that's also brings me to a point about community and the question of like culturally, what do you think? I know it could be like role dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe you can answer to a couple different roles that are in your niche yeah. that you're, you're placing people for. Uh, what kind of cultural fit are people looking for, if at all? Um. I mean, a lot of our clients have something called the 
no jerk or no asshole policy. Okay. Right. And so, you know, some software engineers are incredibly brilliant, but they can come off. Wait, little... how do these people poo if they have no asshole? <laughs> they, uh... <laughs> Sorry, that's a dad joke. That's yeah, like, no, that at good. the same time, no, you know, that was a swear good. word. So That was good. Thank you. Um, they may come off arrogant mm-hmm. a little bit. And I think some, some clients, they may embrace that where they're like, oh, you know, this this developer, this engineer really knows what they're talking about. But other companies are like, you know, this person may come in and clash or, you know, like we have a really good, like friendly kind of culture and collaborative and this person is coming off a little bit abrasive. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that candidates that fail, like usually this is how interviews go. Yeah, You talk with like an internal recruiter for 30 minutes about the role and about your comp expectations. Then you may have like a take-home assignment or like a coding test you have to do to show that you can actually like write code. Mm-hmm. Then there's maybe like a longer, maybe two-hour kind of like system design or a deeper dive panel style interview, like technical interview sure. to maybe discuss your code or your project that you did or just to, to take a deeper dive. And that would be with people at the organization. Yeah, you, usually usually like, you know, with like an architect, your peers, a yeah. developer, maybe your engineering manager, whomever. Then the last one is the culture fit interview, okay? The last one. The last one is the culture fit interview, and this is maybe with like a VP or like a, you know, a C-level or maybe even an engineering manager again. I, I mean, somebody, right? And I would say like over 90% of the people, when they get to the culture fit stage, they're going to get an offer, right? Just by making it there. Just by making it there, you've like checked all the technical boxes, and now just like don't fuck it up kind of thing. Yeah. Right? But some people do. Some people drop the ball at that stage. Yeah. And the feedback we get right. sometimes, and it's it can be very vague because, you know, clients, you know, they don't always want to be completely transparent. Sure. Right? Like, yeah. uh, like, you know. Yeah, because there may be some, yeah. There, there may be, be some pers- legal issues, personal, could, personal clashes, but I think a lot of it is there's there's two reasons why I think people have been rejected at culture fit stage primarily. One is the whole they came off as like a jerk, mm-hmm. right? And the client is uncomfortable because they, they feel like there's some arrogance there. The, the second is um, they maybe lack a commitment to the long-term vision of the company, mm-hmm. right? And, and salespeople, like I'm a sales guy, salespeople are really good at this, mm-hmm. right? Like, We'll come in and we'll we'll get excited about your company and your vision and we'll get you excited about it. And, you know, you're going to walk out and be like, yeah, that guy, Sean, like he's, I want to hire him because right. he, he's going to help me take my co- team like, player and he's going to do, tenets. he's going to, yeah, he's, I can relax. I'll go to the, I'll golf yeah, and not worry about anything. Sean's going to take care of it. He'll take care of you. Right. But then sometimes engineers, they, you know, engineers are great engineers. Sometimes they're not the best salespeople. Right. And. They don't, don't sell themselves. They, they they maybe don't show as much enthusiasm mm-hmm. in the vision, the long-term vision of the company. And then sometimes I get hiring managers come back to, you know, we rejected that candidate because we don't think that candidate will still be here in 18 months or 12 months. We get the impression that this is just, you know, somewhere they're going to come, they're going to write some code, and then in a year they're going to be gone. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, even if I sell you on, like, this is the world now. People are going right. to companies for 
a year and a half, two years, three years, and then they feel like they've kind of plateaued a little bit, and then they're looking for the new challenge. And that's not a bad thing, right? So what? how do you flip that back if you had to and communicate a suggestion to team leads on the hiring side uh, in terms of kind of like managing attrition? Like what... Is, is it just simply a, a question of realigning their their um, expectations to be not, you know, emotionally disturbed by uh, George leaving his tenure at the company early? Yeah. Uh, or is it more about something that they can do? And do you have tips for, for people in terms of managing attrition? Well, here's here's what I would say. Let's go back to George. You use George. Okay, George. George, George is a rock star, right? He smashes all the technical interviews. Do you want George, who's going to give you 98% output for 12 months? Or do you want Jane, who did okay, who's a very nice person, to give you 60% output for two years? Mm -hmm. What would you prefer? Right, And that's the honest question you have to ask, right? Yeah, I, I've been in that situation, and, and, and I get it. It's interesting, right? Because it, it also is like... I think that's a big element of planning and strategizing around culture as well. That's just one example of, of kind of this like commitment question mm -hmm. uh, balanced against, you know, worst possible expected, you know, efficiency and output question. And then there's a, a bunch of other ones that people can consider. But yeah, the idea of kind of saying, how do you consider each candidate um, for their relative merits as opposed to like just ticking a box, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a big lesson is that when people are trying to fit, you know, their hires into specific boxes, I mean, we're talking about people, right? So mm -hmm. and especially creatively minded individuals who are solving complex logic problems, they're not necessarily going to want to ever fit into a box, mm -hmm. even if they're doing very functional work. Um, so I, I guess the, the, the answer lies in this idea of kind of think about who that person is and how they could fit when you're doing interviews because they might not be, they might be totally different than the next candidate, but each one could be valuable for different reasons. Yeah, and, and I understand, like, as a recruitment agency, you want value out of the fee that you're going to pay dev talent, right? So I, I totally respect that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't want to pay dev talent a huge fee and then this person within six months is on to the next thing. Right. I don't want that either for our clients because that's not good business for us, right? And to be frank, I think we did the numbers the other day. Less than 1% of the placements we made with our clients mm -hmm. have left within the first six months. So we've had a very good success rate mm -hmm. with placing developers who have stayed, you know, a year, year and a half, sometimes even longer. And that's even during the pandemic and these tough times. That's during the pandemic of, yeah. and the tough times, right? So I think it's like, you know, you getting, you keeping a great engineer on your team, I think has a lot to do with your company and your team and, you know, your product almost more so than it has to do with the engineer. Mm -hmm. Right? Like if you if you give them exciting work, if you give them great challenges, if you keep them engaged, then they'll stay, right? But if not, like, it's not just me in their inbox, man. So let's hear if you have any. I know the company was born in the pandemic, yeah. pretty much. 
your experience has been dealing with placing people in companies during this crazy time of, yeah. I use the word hybridized. I hate that word, so it's Is tough, that even a word? I am an English professor. Did you make that up? or Maybe. But okay. yeah, it's a word that keeps coming up in every single conversation yeah. I have these days, uh-huh. whether it's about real estate, technology, uh, social concerns, cultural fit, mm-hmm. uh, team stuff. Every client of ours is kind of like talking about hybrid. hybrid yeah. Everything's hybrid. Yeah. But just simply mixing teams that work in person with each other yeah. and then, you know, remote or distributed teams that are kind of people at their terminals at home. Um it's a tough time to be managing any team because of the increased, the, the rapid adoption, I would say, of this distribution of workforce. Um, and what I've seen amongst software companies particular, it, particularly, and even as a landlord, right, we saw this um, whenever in abandoned offices in 2020 and have taken two years to figure out uh, how they can bring people together in real life and what that looks like. We're having tons of conversations with Tons of awesome, you know, clients and companies to figure out that story, mm-hmm. um, because most companies don't even have the internal capability to to rationalize the situation that they're in. It's very difficult. Um, but anyway, the point is that as hiring has been complicated by dealing with managing distribution as well. Are any of your clients that you talk to kind of facing this two sided problem where? They might be now hiring remote, mm-hmm. right? So people calling up for Canadian talent from the States, uh, they might never even meet that talent in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is that attitude to hiring? Might it, How might it have changed because of this distribution? And also, how are they thinking of kind of the next step of, of managing a distributed team? Is it a case where they're planning, you know, points in the future to bring team, like have all team sessions in the, you know, at the beach once a year? Or I don't know. What are you What are you feeling out from your clients on that side of things? Yeah. So there's one client in particular. They, they're probably our largest client. They're a San Francisco based startup, um, SaaS company. And when they engaged us, the company was maybe under 200 employees, somewhere in that, maybe 150. They had maybe an engineering team of 30 or 40, mm-hmm. all in the Bay Area. And they came to us and like, you know, we want to hire in Toronto. We want to create an engineering hub. And the reason they wanted to do that was their plan was to open up an office as soon as the pandemic was over. Right, right. So I said, sure, no problem. You know, we recruited and they hired 10, 20, 30. I don't know what it's at now. It's, it's probably in the 50-ish range, if not more. Mm-hmm. Right Now I would say before it was like less than 1% of their engineering team was in Canada. Now it's probably... Maybe not 50, but close to 50, maybe at least 40, 45%, maybe 50% in Canada. Wow. Yep. And, you know, we had a big piece of that. Mm-hmm. So the, the the cool thing about it is they originally told us, hey, we're going to build this office and we get people in and we're going to collaborate and we're going to work together. But when they came back around and all the pandemic sort of... Um, uh, restrictions were lifted yeah they asked the team hey do you want an office and it seems like no yeah i don't want to come into office like, this whole time i've been with this company i've been like you know i don't want to spend time commuting i don't like i don't it doesn't need that like we've we've built a great company and team and culture and so they pivoted 
like to their credit, they didn't just dig their heels in mm-hmm. and said, well, too bad. Here's the office. Go in right, there. Right. What they did was they started doing like offsites. Mm-hmm. And they would do them. I'm not sure if it's like quarterly, but they would, you know, over a span of like a week, the team from San Francisco would fly in. People would be in hotels. Then they'd be they'd be doing like long days. They you know they'd be in at like eight a.m. They'd be going till eight p.m. kind of thing, mm-hmm. like for three four days. And it was it was really valuable. People got together. They had a great time. They worked their butts off, and they were able to build the culture. It's funny because this is what I was telling you, you know, before the cameras started rolling, is that this is the primary function of Startwell now in Toronto, right? Yeah. We're facilitating, not, sorry, I should use the right semantics. We're not facilitators of sessions, but um, our existence mm-hmm. enables teams to come together for these full day sessions. And we're seeing this happen every single day. We got like, you know, five to 20 different teams a day. Um, come together here and people flying in, especially, yeah, now that we're post-pandemic, everyone's airport friendly, um, flying in from all over the place, finding Toronto to be a really interesting kind of North American and Northeast hub mm-hmm. more than New York compared to some people that I know in this space, uh, in, uh, particularly in co-working, um, we're finding people meeting in Toronto. Mm-hmm. We have a shortage of, of hotel beds in the city, that's for sure. We saw that this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with things like Elevate, was it Elevate Festival? Um, a couple of these big like conferences and festivals, when they happen in Toronto, mm-hmm. there's no hotels. And we had like, we lost tons of bookings. Or TIFF. I yeah. lost I lost about $100,000 in bookings, which really? for me is a lot. Yeah. Uh, just because of TIFF. Because oh. no one could get rooms. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. So right now yeah. we got to build a hotel, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, 2023. Well, I can sleep on this table can i yeah i could just roll out mattresses on the floor um but yeah it's become our bread and butter because this is the i believe strongly that this is the new way of in real life is that you know you don't need this place that's on lock 24 7 for teams to possibly use to find efficiencies they can't have wherever they're working yeah you got to enable as an employer you got to enable your team to find whatever they need as a place of work um so Part of some companies' expectations that everyone works at home, you know, and should kind of be comfortable doing that, maybe a little bit like, you know, biased and top down. Because um, I know there's OPEX gains to that, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and work life balance is a big question, and, you know, whether people feel shackled because they're at home. In the dev world, it's a bit different. I've talked to a lot of developers who are like, as long as they can afford and the economics make sense to have that space to do their work, they're way more efficient at their work and they like that efficiency. They enjoy it. So to each their own, but uh, when people need to come together to either like socially reset, which is what we're finding is a major function of these offsites is everyone come together in real life to actually get to know each other. Yeah. Even though they talk all day long and they message each other. Uh, and and make those offsites particularly into experiences, you know. So we have a lot of teams that will like come together at Startwell. They'll book out a multi-day session, but then they plan these really cool things. Like they'll go somewhere wicked for lunch. Uh, then the next day they'll go like climb the CN Tower together or yeah. go to the museum. Uh, well, that's what we did. Scavenger hunts around the city. We did. So, so it's a good segue, right? Like, yeah. So it, it's interesting. I keep asking my team. What do you think about the office day? And they love it. 
uh, you know, we had, uh, I think maybe not last month, the month before we came in here, everyone had a little bit of a lighter morning. And, uh, I said to the team, Hey, you guys want to go to the ROM? And we just said, sure. And we just grabbed, got in the cars, got in the Ubers, went over to the ROM and walked around and just, you know, enjoyed hung it. For, yeah. Hung out for, for a couple hours. And, it's stuff like that that you just can't do when everyone's at, on, online at home, right? Yeah. And and I, I say to the team, like, how does this affect productivity, right? And the team says, you know, in terms of, like, because they view productivity almost differently. Right. Because they're like, well, did I get enough messages out? Did I reach out to enough uh, developers today? Did I have enough, like, screening calls? And when you look at it purely from those metrics, mm-hmm. Sure, we probably don't do as many screening calls on office days than we would on the other, you know, 19 business days that we're at home. Mm-hmm. But what you gain is like building that company culture. Yeah. Right. And I also find that if you're if you're trying to have like harder conversations or like coaching conversations, mm-hmm. it's it's easier, I think, and more effective to have them in person. In person. Be- because yeah. You may not be able to get all the visual, even though you might oh see God. someone on his body Zoom. language is everything, right? Yeah, like, that's why. That's why, like, literally, I don't know when I made this decision, but I decided at some point the pandemic is over for me, which meant you know you just you just ended it. I ended it. <laughs> in terms of mindset, right? In terms of the like the the response paradigm. So you, um, were you that guy just walking around with no mask and everyone else wearing a mask? Just like take your mask you're, off. You're, you're like, I remember I was in the Eaton Center or some mall. And this couple, they were they were both unmasked. Yeah. And it was funny. They weren't just unmasked. They were peacocking around the mall, like oh, chest really? out, like walking yeah, like yeah. this. Feeling free. Just, just like, you know, kind of like looking at everybody else wearing their masks. Like, look at you idiots. Like, you know, you guys are all sheep <laughs> wearing your masks. And so that was that you? No, man. Okay. All right. No, all right. My, my, my wife's a doctor. So, you know, I'm, I'm very... Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm both scolded and kept in line and uh, and brought up to speed on all the science. So yeah, okay. you know I'm I'm down with people playing it safe. But on screen, we almost had more body language for a little while there mm-hmm. compared to in real life. Because when you're talking to someone, okay, you can't hear me on the mic for mm-hmm. all our audio listeners. I was covering my mouth as if I have a mask on. But you you do that and you have, lose so much sensorial data, right? Yeah, you can't see a lot of our a lot uh, the majority i would think of us hearing is is lip reading you know for people and you see this with seniors right as soon as their hearing's gone mm-hmm. um they find it difficult to just engage with people um anyway so that's an interesting observation but yeah i made the decision in my mind that the, the pandemic was over which which meant for me that i really enjoy communicating with people in person and for the content that Startwell produces, the pandemic was over, meaning I had founded this uh, this content series in, in like April 2020 called A New Normal. Mm-hmm. And A New Normal was, I think, a 12 or 13 episode series interviewing um, entrepreneurs either in person outside or via everyone's favorite crappy video conferencing tool, Zoom. Mm-hmm to be able to get their takes on how their businesses are doing and how are they managing as entrepreneurs, as business leaders through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended that series for me saying that, you know, the pandemic was over was saying I'm ending that series and I'm going back to, to real content uh, by having people in the studio. 
Yeah. Now I only will do in-person stuff in the studio. I don't do any remote content. Um, and a big part of that is body language. That's why we, uh, you know, have invested in multicam technology and like all this stuff to relate a, an experience for our, our viewers, our audience that brings them into the room. Yeah. You know, and the cinematics are missing from the box perspective on that webcam. Well, you know, the funny thing about Zoom is when I go into Zoom meeting, I always turn my camera on. That's just me. I don't mandate people turn their camera on. I, I, a lot of meetings, I'll mm -hmm. tell you, I go in, I might be the only person with my camera on. I, I personally do it. I don't know why I do it, to be honest. But I, I do it because I just, I'm used to doing it. And I feel like, because I'm usually leading the meeting, mm -hmm. that it increases some type of engagement. I don't know if it does or not. And to be frank, if you have your camera off, I don't really care. Yeah. Right? I like it when people turn their camera on. It's nice to see them. Yeah. But I don't know. Like if you're in a meeting and you're lying down or maybe you didn't do your hair in the morning or, you know, what you're, you're eating something, like that's totally fine, right? But yeah. I think going back, like bring this full circle. Yeah. As you're building a culture, building a culture only remotely is very difficult, right? And I think when we started coming here about a year ago, just once a month, you could sense a change in like how the team interacted with each other. Right? Mm. You could see that, you know, two two of my employees would have like kind of a break off conversation over in the like you know they'd be chilling on the couch talking about whatever you know like what they did in the weekend or, mm -hmm. and you know like those little sidebar conversations they create like that connection. Mm -hmm. And then I think it it makes you more invested in the other person's success mm -hmm. because now you know them a little bit more, right? It makes you root for them a bit more. You you want to see them win, right? And I think that's the main takeaway, right? And so, yes, you can do this virtually, but I think not having that in-person presence at all, mm -hmm. I think definitely um, it's hard. It, it's hard. It's also hard for the people because they feel isolated. Right. And that's the opposite of what every employer should want. You know, you want your team members to feel like they're part of the team. They can yeah. communicate. They can work together. They can solve problems together. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So very interesting. I, I think this is where things are going. I agree with you. Uh, I'm happy that your team is here because I think um, it's it's been interesting through this time because I think you were one of the earliest teams to start committing to this once a month. What were we? I don't know. because so we're like trailblazers. Yeah, you guys are definitely trailblazers at Death Talent. <laughs> Absolutely. Nice. I like it. Yeah, and you're one of the early teams to commit to to a big chunk of time. We had a few mm -hmm. that around the time that you guys got started with us were doing the similar kind of thing. Um, but to be honest, like a couple of other examples uh, didn't end up working out mm -hmm. because they didn't necessarily have common culture amongst their team. Mm. Uh, and then I think they ended up splintering off to like four different types of offsites. And it was just a team of 15 or 20 people. Yeah. Um, but they ended up like some people wanted to meet in a coffee shop. Some people wanted to meet in a hotel lobby. Uh, some people didn't ever want to meet. And, you know, so that's. But that's, that's cool happen. too. Yeah. I think you have to be open to that. Right. Totally. I think as, as the CEO of this company, I'd be lying if I didn't say, yeah, I'd love it if everyone just bought in. Mm-hmm. And was gung ho about 
all right, like, you know, it's the first Thursday of the month. We're going to go down to start. Well, we're going to have a great time. We're going to go lunch and you know, maybe we'll do dinner after. Right. Mm-hmm. Just not everyone's like that. And I think you, you have to just be adaptable, right? Yeah. Because some people work better. Like what I've told the team is, look, if you know you have a quota and you have accountability to your number, mm-hmm. if being at home, if even that one day a month, it's better for you to be at home and to just work and you do not want to come in and kind of do more of like the social engagement with your teammates, I'm not going to like hold that against you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hope, I'll be happy if you come, but I'm not going to hold that against you. And I think having that openness, you know, we have over a nine, like almost 99% like attendance rate, right? But every once in a while people don't come mm-hmm. and it's fine. You know, just no worries. Yeah. So, I think having the ability for someone to participate and that being optional uh, eventually lends to, you know, if as long as it's not in the way of their life. Well, they get FOMO. They <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> what? You guys got charcoal ice cream? You went to the ROM? What? No, nah, the ROM. See dinosaur bones. I love that stuff, man. My daughter and I go, and she, she particularly loves the mummies. She oh, yeah. look at the mummy. Yeah, the mummies are the best. Papa, is he sleeping? Tell him to wake up. Tell him to wake up. Oh, the mummy. She loves it. It's yeah. so much fun. She's four and a half. That's why, you know, if she was like 40 and I was saying that, well, that would be a problem if my daughter was 40 because anyway, I'm 42. <laughs> but um, no, it was a pleasure talking about all these different aspects of kind of hiring for remote teams sure. um, and managing your own team as well, which I think was interesting. Um, I'm glad that that came out in this conversation. And I, I hope that, you know, our audience enjoys kind of hearing this perspective from the recruiter uh, perspective too on this. Uh, I know a lot of our audience members are kind of internal at organizations, and um, and trying to you know work through uh, new realities. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you want to end with any particular advice or otherwise recommendations for uh, people that might want to scratch your brain a bit more? Yeah, um, I mean around building culture and company culture. Anything that you want? Yeah, I guess you know on that tangent, I would say. The the one the biggest thing I've learned not only from you know our own experience but also through our clients is now in this hybridization is that what the term sure right? hybridization Hybrid- yeah. <laughs> hybridized worlds <laughs> hybridized worlds that we're living in it's it's giving people choice right and it's giving them options of you know if you want to work remote only cool if you want to get some of that on site great mm-hmm. but giving people the opportunity i think when you only say we're only remote or we're only on site or this is mandatory that you have to do this or you have to do that that's when i think people become um like they get their wall up or they get their back up a bit and they're a little bit you know hesitant mm-hmm. right but when you give them options and w- without consequence that you know if you this is the type of experience that you want out of work then you know experience it that way mm-hmm. but if this is not the type of experience you want at work you want to experience a different way that's okay i think that's where companies really uh succeed i like it thanks for taking time man no problem Cassim. thanks for having awesome me awesome having appreciate you appreciate it all right cheers appreciate it